If you love Push Black's Black History Year, you'll love our newest podcast called Two Minute Black History. In only two minutes, you'll hear little known stories about our people and reclaim the knowledge we need to take action and advance our community. To move towards the future, you've got to look to the past. Learn the history you didn't get in school. Tune in to Two Minute Black History every Tuesday through Friday, right on the Black History Year feed and wherever you listen to podcasts. There's a hefty debt to pay for living in a black body. For our audacity to exist with melanated skin, we've endured subjugation, political and economic disenfranchisement, and centuries-long death. Even so, those oppressive systems consume our blackness to the bone, spit us out, and mark us as invaluable, ugly, and undesirable. It's a steep price indeed, and the price only intensifies when you're black and fat. I'm Jay from Push Black, and you're tuned in to Black History Year. In many ways, the health and wellness industry is killing us. It sounds like an oxymoron, but it's an empire that's made trillions by promoting thinness as beauty while condemning fatness and dog-whistling anti-fat violence. And anti-fatness is intrinsically linked to anti-blackness. Let's talk about it with today's guest, Deshaun L. Harrison. Deshaun is a self-described black, fat, trans, disabled, queer abolitionist, community organizer, writer, and editor at Scalawag Magazine. Their award-winning book, Belly of the Beast, The Politics of Anti-Fatness as Anti-Blackness, explores desirability politics, gender, policing, and the fallacies of healthiness. Deshaun is reimagining the possibilities of embracing fatness, ugliness, and undesirability. So get ready for this transformative conversation. But before we chop it up, let's explore the tradition of fattening rooms. Check this out. We've been taught that being fat is bad, but now scientists aren't sure. Recent studies have shown that being fat doesn't equal being dangerously unhealthy. But there's something else hazardous about fat culture, and it harms all of us. Historically, in Nigeria and some other communities, women preparing for marriage would go to fattening rooms. For months, they would eat to get fat, showing they were healthy, wealthy, beautiful, and ready for marriage. Through a Western lens, this seems concerning. In America, many believe being fat is destructive to one's health, but research shows this isn't always true. According to Scientific American, Prejudices about fatness have trumped actual evidence in our view of weight and health. A study by the European Heart Journal discovered that physical activity is a much better predictor of health than weight. But there's another 
danger involving fatness, and it impacts everyone. Fat phobia, fear of fatness or becoming fat, is ingrained within our culture. Body shaming, which is historically anti-black, creates a culture that teaches us to police each other's bodies. This is dehumanizing and leads to everyone's health care being reduced to what we look like. Everyone deserves to live freely, including fat black people who want to live without shame or judgment. Whether fit, fat, skinny, thick, or however else we want to be, we can actively decide not to body shame ourselves or others and instead love our bodies despite white societies telling us to hate them. So we're going to start this off like we do every show. Most important question is, what does black liberation look like to you? I think that this question is really complex for me. I, I think a lot of what I what I have to say is not necessarily what, what people want to hear, but I think that Black liberation for me is the destruction of the possibility for race itself, right? I, I recognize that race, gender, class, et cetera, all these things are structures that help to form the world and by doing so help to um, construct the anti-Black violence that we experience. And so um, I think that if there is a Black liberation, it is on the other side of whatever the destruction of these concepts look like. And, and that's what it is to me. I don't think I've heard that definition before, so I'm intrigued and I want to dig in. So when you say, for example, the destruction of race, um, can you dig a little bit deeper into what you mean by that? Yeah, so actually what I, what I think I, what I think is perhaps more accurate is is the destruction of whiteness by way of anti-blackness. Um, and what I mean by that is, or when I say that rather, I'm pulling on um, a particularly Afro-pessimist lens, um, which is to say that I think that there is a, the way that the world is is constructed, the way that that we exist in the world is white over black, right? That the existence of whiteness is always and already defined over and against blackness and black people. Uh, and so when I say the destruction of race, I mean the destruction of a structure or a system or a category that necessitates black people being on the bottom always. The systems and the structures that put blackness at bottom or at the bottom are only able to function because blackness exists, um, because whiteness exists. It is the destruction of all ties that we have to this cultural understanding of blackness. Um, and I know that that's like a really scary thing for a lot of us because so much of our identity is built around our blackness. And also when you think about what that means or what it looks like, right? Um, so much about 
what helps to define blackness for so many of us is that it's it's rooted in our subjugation, our oppression, um, how we're marginalized and and how we've been able to build relationships, build some sort of culture out of being subjugated. It's interesting hearing that because um, I would agree to what point you made around for many of us, black identity being tied to the idea of the oppression and subjugation that has united us and that being a core part of the consciousness. Um, and I can understand why there would be a desire to be liberated from that. Um, are you familiar with the work of um, Alefi Asante in Afrocentricity, he describes two different types of consciousness, one being the oppression consciousness, which is um, more aligned with what I believe I'm understanding hearing you describe. And then he describes the victory consciousness, which is an understanding of the ways that blackness has been victorious for thousands of years and the embracing of that in order to um, understand what we can do to achieve victory now and in the future. Um, I'm curious if you're familiar with those frameworks and how that um, relates to the um, perspective you're sharing. Yeah, I am vaguely familiar. I do have um, quite a few friends who are um, Afrocentrists who are who are studying that in, in school currently. And we've had a lot of conversations um, about that. And yeah, I think that there is a lot of alignment between um, what I'm what I'm offering and, and what's being offered in that field. I also think that there's a clear distinction between the two, particularly because I think where I where I land is that blackness in name, right, as as a form, as as something to be, comes through colonialism, right? It quite literally is something created by slave masters as a way to to create the slave. I think that I am very interested in not necessarily thinking about blackness as something that can be reclaimed maybe um, and turned into something else, but rather that it is the foundation of it is it relies upon slavery. Uh, and, and if that is the case, trying to, to move away from that because None of us want to be the slave, right? I can definitely understand that. Being here, we've been really raised and taught to believe, hey, this is your identity, right? This coming from this slavery and uh, this black identity that's rooted in that. So anything after that should be seen as as progress. And um, I think what's interesting is the idea of you know victory um, as it traces our history before that. And so that, that's some of what we work on at Push Black. Without getting too deep into that, I do want to go ahead and get into more about how um, what you're describing and your your vision of Black liberation, how does the work you do connect to to achieving that vision that you've described? I'm, I'm deeply invested in um, providing an intervention to, to folks um, a clear understanding of the connection between anti-fatness and anti-blackness, anti-fatness as anti-blackness, um, particularly the ways that 
through the the making of the slave or through the transatlantic slave trade, um, how these terms become interchangeable or coterminous, how we we start to see fatness sort of functioning as on on a larger scale in in a in a hegemonic sense or as it's as it's defined by whiteness, fatness functioning as something that represents blackness or black people. Um, and I'm interested in in raising that that awareness because I think that so much about how the world is structured, um, so much about what we understand about our desires or our our needs or even things that we don't understand about our desires or our needs, just things that are perhaps more unconscious, um, derive from this structure. Uh, and I think that the the more we understand that, the the less invested we'll be in maintaining white structures. Um, and I hope that 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 brings us closer to a, an interest in revolting. So let's build on that. The more we understand, the less invested we'll be in upholding these these structures. Um, can you give us a rundown um, as it relates to uh, anti-fatness? Share some of the history there as it relates to Black folks and uh, race in general. I'll start by naming that there's a wonderful book um, named Fearing the Black Body by Sabrina Strings, um, wherein she gives a very comprehensive um, historical analysis of anti-fatness or, or what she calls fat phobia um, and white supremacy and their relationship. Uh, and so what she sort of, or not sort of, what she does talk about in the book is that through the transatlantic slave trade, right, white Europeans, white Americans saw Africans, right? They saw they saw black folks' bodies and they're like, you know, at different points in time in history, this was acceptable. This was an acceptable body. This was this represented wealth. Um, not always for everyone, but in different parts in a time, it, it, it was something that was embraced. But the way that they witnessed it on black flesh, on on black bodies, it became grotesque and unrighteous and uncivil and savage. Right? That this was language that they would use to describe black people and our bodies. And in doing so, through the spread of the of, through the spread of Protestant Christianity, through um, the transatlantic slave trade, what we end up getting is anti-fatness or fat phobia as a coherent ideology, something that is organized around right through eugenics, through race science, through um, medical apartheid, through racialized um, medicalization, right. Uh, and so what that looks like for a long time was eugenicists and anthropologists and slave owners. And at, at one point in time, those terms are all interchangeable, to be clear. These folks would create entire mental and physical disabilities um, that they would, quote unquote, diagnose slaves with as a way to... Um, keep them from revolting, right, as a way to punish their bodies. This is during the, the 18th, 19th, 20th century. We get to the 2000s, right, and 
now we have the CDC releasing a statement or a journal entry rather that says that 400,000 Americans are dying from obesity a year, right? That it, that it surpassed toba- t- tobacco as the number one killer of Americans. Uh, and then a year later, they release a statement that says, actually, that number was not true. It was, it's only 112,000. Um, but we have been, we were using 30 year old data. And what we saw was this amount of fat people died and this amount of thin people died. And so we just basically, we just said basically that like, because more fat people were dying than thin people, that it was because they were fat. We didn't check for what the reason could have been. Maybe it was a car crash. Maybe it was whatever, right? None of that was checked for. Um, but by this point, in that in that year's time, the CDC and other government-funded medical industries and media had all benefited from this quote-unquote war on obesity. And Black folks make up 12, 13% of the U.S. population, but make up over half of America's fat population. That is not coincidental, right? The BMI body mass index was created um, by a white mathematician who was basing all of his findings off of French and Scottish white men. Um, and, and he based those, those findings off of them and called it the perfect man. And everybody else was supposed to look like that. Most Black folks <laughs> across gender spectrum, ir- irrespective of their size, whatever, do not look like French and Scottish white men. But that has been a system that we've been using to determine who is and is not, quote unquote, obese for over 200 years. Um, and so in the 2000s, right, that becomes an even heavier funded project um, that becomes the basis for, for how people are engaged in the medical industry in, in the U.S. Um, and outside of, but particularly in the U.S. And so the history of this, what, what this is to say is that there have been very clear targeted attacks on Black folks specifically by way of the size of our bodies, by, by the, the, the use of anti-fatness as anti-Blackness, this conflation of the two, and, and this need to discipline, punish, subjugate Black people by any means necessary. And that is the general history of, of fatness and Blackness. There's a brilliant book written by Andrea Elizabeth Shaw um, called um, The Embodiment of Disobedient Fat Black Women's Unruly Political Bodies. That was written in 2006, where she's writing about a lot of the same history as it pertains to Black women in particular in and outside of the U.S., so not just in the U.S., but also across the diaspora and the ways that Black women's larger bodies have been used um, or thought of, rather, as unruly, as 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 these disobedient political things um, to be disciplined. And so there's there's a very long history with the ways that anti-fatness functions as anti-blackness or 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 functions interchangeably with with anti-blackness 
this means interrogating more deeply the types of black folks being murdered by police, right? It looks like interrogating more deeply the ways that black fat trans folks are having to pay two to three times more than our thin counterparts for gender affirming surgeries, right? It looks like interrogating the way that the medical industry, the diet industry, gym culture, all of these things sort of build multi-billion dollar industries based on our desire to be thin because of what we're taught about fatness, about thinness, about abstinence, and this relationship between this medical science and Christianity. When you think about like Kellogg cereal, right? A lot of us love different Kellogg cereals and and we enjoy that. We we a lot of us like oatmeal and things of that nature. But the the foundation of Kellogg's was that it was created as a, a type of food that was supposed to be bland to to teach folks how to be abstinent, particularly women, because there was this idea that if you could control what you ate and therefore control your weight, your size, what you looked like, you could control your sexual urges. There was this, I, there was this, this desire to push people into abstinence by way of Christianity through the use of bland foods um, to discipline people into feeling shame around their urges to, both to eat and to have sex, right? So this is, this is a very long history in and outside of the U.S. around food, weight, fatness, um, and blackness. Yeah, it's, it's a very concerted um, and complicated history. So, you know, I subscribe to the hypothesis that, um, and evidence for that, that there, the humans have been predisposed in general to have the ability to maintain excess fat for survival. Um, like throughout human history, you know, food shortages have been very common. So those who were, who, who were able to store excess fat were better equipped to survive during those shortages, during those hard times. And this was, from my understanding, especially important for women who required a different type of energy from fat uh, for pregnancy and nursing. So survival really depended on that. So certain societies across the world began to uh, view excess weight as a sign, uh, to your point, of health and prosperity, longevity, fertility, abundance, uh, whereas to the point where a lot of places being thin was looked at as if something was wrong. It seems that across most societies, even that those at the top sort of dictated what those beauty standards were when it came to, to that, whereas those who controlled the resources when there was food shortages could be seen as... Uh, you know, fatness or plumpness being this is the ideal. Now we get to a point here today where it's like, um, since we exist in a world where it's relatively easy to put on excess weight and excess fat, um, it seems that those at the top of society are now saying, okay, um, I have leisure time to, to exercise. I have, uh, I'm showing off because I have self-control in ways that others don't or that, um, I can afford for certain things to make me be fit and thin. And now, so this is the standard uh, in a way that 
didn't necessarily exist for most of human history. And then to connect it to your point, it seems that that's clearly um, racialized. It has been racialized uh, over the past few hundred years. So I'm curious as to, um, you know, the connections you see between that and the work that you uh, worked in research that you've done. Yeah, I, I, I think that you're you're spot on, right? Like there is there there has been this really big effort for the last 500 years, right, to create these these standards of beauty and health um, in a way that is directly responsible for Black people's oppression, um, and that and that has been intentional, and so it it is using science, using medicine, using government funding, using media to determine um, or or to to produce a narrative that has not been true for most of human history. My work is less interested in trying to find um, what I think some would call a, a solution to to fatness or or whatever, right? Because I am of the belief that there is nothing wrong with fatness. My my work is is much more invested in trying to find a solution to these structures, these anti-fat structures. Um, that help to continue uh, the the subjugation, the marginalization, the oppression of fat folks, specifically and particularly fat black folks, um, and the way that, that that functions for different folks who are marginalized in different ways, right? So black women, black trans folks, black queer folks, etc. I, I feel very aligned with a lot of that and that for me, it's important to just be clear that a lot of times when we have these conversations, people, they get to the research and, and they're able to sort of stop at, okay, well, it's about food deserts and it's about um, things of that nature, right? That we, you know, if we get, if we rid our, rid the world of capitalism, then, then, then all is well, right? Then people won't be fat. But the problem is not that people are fat because of capitalism, right? People have been fat for as long as people have existed. And yes, right, food deserts and all these things are absolutely issues, to be clear. But people don't, there is no one one way to look for people. And that idea that there is, is a very, very new concept. And I am interested in in destroying that idea, in, in destroying the idea that fatness is something to be solved. I hear that. And I can understand that for sure. Um, not that it's something to be solved, but um, as you said, there's different ways of of being, and what you are, uh, your work is uh, attempting to do is explore ways to um, tear down the systems that prevent folks from being uh, in their full selves in the way that they uh, would prefer to be. Am I understanding that correctly? Right. Or at the very least, um, shining light on what those systems are. So um, let's get into the systems a little more. The concept of 
policing uh, stands out when I read your work, read some of your work and heard you speak in terms of uh, how black folks and fat bodies are policed to a different degree. Uh, what have you seen as it relates to that? Yeah, this for me was a particularly important thing to write about, is a particularly important thing for me to to write and talk about because I, I've been um, someone who has been an organizer or engaged in um, political and social thought for 10 years now. And um, I've been on the ground. I've, I've done a lot of organizing around police violence, police murders, police terror. Um, and so much of it um, starts and stops at us being Black. And, and at some point, it gets to, you know, other identities. Um, but I had never witnessed anyone actually sit and and, and think out loud, at, at least, about who it was that we were witnessing on our screens, right? So, so not necessarily that every single person um, who, who was being murdered by police were, were fat, right? That's obviously not true. But that who we were witnessing as, whose murders we were witnessing on the screen on repeat, right, was important to me to, to interrogate. And so in Belly of the Beast, I sort of do, I take the reader through a timeline from 2014 through 2020, starting with that's a great title, the by the way. It just hit me. Sorry to interrupt. The belly of the beast. <laughs> no, you're okay. Yeah, Thank that's you. incredible. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Thank you. No, 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 you're good. I, I really appreciate that. It, that is, um, I appreciate that because I am really big on, on wordplay and all the things. And so when someone actually appreciates that, it means a lot to me. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. That's um, great. But I take the reader through the years 2014 through 2020. In 2014, starting with the murder of Eric Garner, right? This was one of the most popular murders by police that we that we have witnessed in recent years. Um, and then from there, we we get from Eric Garner to Mike Brown to Tamir Rice, all in the same year. And when you think about the ways that each of them were described, right? Eric Garner was described as this, this man who essentially was on his way out already, right? The, the, the medical examiner of the first autopsy um, who was hired by police, of course, said that even a bear hug could have killed him. So to justify that he was murdered by being choked out, right? That even a bear hug could have killed him. That this, that this was someone who was inhuman, who, who wasn't a person who was almost on his way out because of how large he was. Mike Brown was described as Hulk Hogan, as a, a, a character who could run through bullets, right? The, the officer who, who murdered him literally describes him in this way, as someone who ran through bullets, who was Hulk Hogan, compared him to a gorilla. Tamir Rice was talked about as someone who was much older than he was. Everyone said that he was, they thought he was 21 at least, Tamir Rice was in middle school. Tamir Rice was, was 12 when he was murdered. And so what I think is, when I started thinking on that, reflecting on that, it, it made me do a lot more research between 
that point in time and when I was writing this book, which was in 2020. In fact, I was writing Belly of the Beast in the midst of the uprisings happening in response to Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and... Um, George Floyd. George Floyd. Thank you. Too many names. Yeah. Um, but I was writing. I was writing in the midst of those uprisings, and um, so I started thinking. Right, like 2016, the year of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling. Philando Castile is a thinner man. Alton Sterling is much larger. We got in 2015. We have Walter Scott. We had Samuel Dubose. There were so many names that I was reflecting on of people who had been murdered by police and almost all of them in the wake of their, of their murders have been described as some type of inhuman or large body that needed to be disciplined, that needed to be taken down, right? They leaned heavily on presumed medical issues that could have that could have led to their deaths had they not been murdered by police as justification for or as a way to absolve police of murdering them and that made me go back to to slavery right it, it made me go back to to chattel slavery in particular and do more reading on how black folks were being described by slave catchers, which as so many of us know by now, were the original form of police in the US, along with white militias. Um, and that is what helped me to arrive at this analysis that fatness plays a significant role in how people how black folks are in particular are policed, even black folks who we wouldn't necessarily read as fat because of the ways that our bodies are engaged or are thought of under the white gaze, right? It is what happens with black children and how they're able to be adultified at eight years old, right? How black girls become Black women to so many people, how Black boys become Black men to so many people. Mike Brown had just graduated high school. Tamir Rice was 12 years old, but they were described as much, much, much older and much larger than they actually were as people who possessed superpowers, right? Um, even in the, Tamir Rice, in the Tamir Rice case, the man who initially called 911 about seeing Tamir Rice in the park with what he thought was a toy gun. He named that to the dispatcher. He said he looks like a juvenile. And then in his questioning, he said, well, I don't know. He could have been at least 20. So I say all that to say that we don't necessarily think about fatness as, as something that plays a significant role in how we're policed. But I know as, as someone who has always been larger in size, the ways that my mom, my family have always talked to me in particular about police has always been in a way where I've been asked to shrink myself, right? I've been asked to make myself smaller in whatever ways that I could because of my size, right? Because of how police would see me as a threat because I am larger in size, taller and fatter, right? So 
as I reflected on 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 these murders, as I reflected on the history of slave catching and the ways that anti-fatness becomes a coherent ideology through the making of the slave or through anti-blackness, all of that to me began to function as very clear evidence or at least something to, to begin to theorize around between the ways that police work and how they interact with Black people, even those of us who we wouldn't describe as fat because of how we are always already seen as larger and as inhuman um, and therefore as beasts or something to be taken down, something to be caged, something to be euthanized. So if I'm understanding correctly, there's a perception there that there's a uh, more like an inhuman strength and power or force or just taking up space. And that has to be contained uh, by any means and using means that are probably more extreme than they would uh, other non-black folks. Yeah, absolutely. I think I would say um, superpower, but also particular vulnerabilities, right? Because even if they don't necessarily think of you as as someone who has super strength, right, or, or has these superpowers who can run through bullets, they do see you as someone who is already dispensable because you are fat because you are large, because to them, seeing you as someone who's fat means that you are all the words that, that people use to describe fat folks, right? Lazy, um, you know, burdensome, undisciplined, grotesque, all the, all these things that, that, are, that are used to describe fat folks. Yeah, the beast, exactly. Um, and so even if you aren't superhuman, you have particular vulnerabilities that make killing you justified. So I'm also interested in the, the health aspect. Um, so this is sort of where um, I have, I guess, trouble understanding some of the, the arguments that relate to the anti-fatness um, it seems that there is an argument that the data and the research is sort of, there's some inconsistencies in it, um, but there's other work that seems to be inconsistent in terms of at a certain point, folks are going to be at a higher risk for certain things. But then there also seems to be an emphasis, if I'm understanding your work correctly, that um, it's not necessarily about health. Um, and I'm, I'm going to quote something here from um, an excerpt of your work. It says, but health doesn't have a universal look and it's never about mental or spiritual health. The reality is that none of us will experience 100% health because we're all navigating different things as marginalized people, as people who are oppressed. That won't ever keep us 100% happy with our mental or 100% happy with our physical or 100% happy with our spiritual selves. So I'm not as invested in my health as I am in feeling good in my body. So I'm curious if you can um, unpack that a bit in terms of where the focus of your work lies as, as relates to anti um combating anti fatness and bringing awareness as it relates to um to health in that excerpt i'm pulling on the definition 
largely used to describe health, which is defined by the World Health Organization, um, which says loosely, this is not verbatim, but says loosely that um, health is defined by people who are mentally, physically, and socially safe. So what I'm arguing is that as Black folks, there is no way to be mentally, physically, and socially safe or well in an anti-Black world. It's, it's impossible, right? If police can murder us in our sleep while we're lying in our beds, right? If folks can be murdered on the streets, right? If doctors don't engage us or if we are too poor to be able to afford seeing a doctor in the first place, right? If there are all these circumstances that keep us from any possibility of safety and wellness, then we are already outside of the realm of possibility for how health is being defined. So I am much less invested in trying to find a way to to be healthy in that way, right? Um, And I'm much more invested in finding ways to, to feel good in my body, which is to say that there is no one size fits all um, way of being. A lot of times people people will say that fat folks are at a higher risk for um, particular um, conditions or, or disabilities. And what a lot of research has found is that a lot of fat folks are not even being engaged properly by medical professionals to even know what it is that they are or are not at risk of, right? That if the solution that doctors offer to fat folks for every single thing that we experience is to lose weight, then our actual illnesses, our actual needs are never actually being met. They're never actually being considered. Um, And if that is the case, then we are also always outside the realm of possibility for care and for health, for wellness, for safety, because we're not being fully considered by the people who are supposed to be caring for our wellness, our safety, and our health, right? And I think that that is also really important because a lot of data that that has been used to sort of push this narrative that fat folks are at larger or at higher risk for certain conditions, particularly Black people, right? Black people are said to be at higher risk for hypertension and high cholesterol and and all these things. Um, But the data doesn't actually go into what is causing these issues, right? It doesn't consider the environment in which we live. It doesn't consider the ways that the, the stressors of, of living in an anti-Black world plays a significant role in how our body responds to that stress, right? It doesn't consider um, that Black folks across the diaspora, not just Black Americans, but across the diaspora, have always and will always eat differently than white folks, right? But we're pushing this idea that like the only way to eat is to have quinoa and kale and, and, and spinach and remove all the foods that feel like home to you from your plate. Um, all these things contribute to health, but not just health, it contributes to the structures that, that maintain health, diet, the diet industry, the medical industry, 
the gym industry, right? But these are multi-billion dollar industries that are built around shaming people for their size and have historically skewed numbers and skewed science to produce that shame to build the, the multi-billion dollar industries that they are. Uh, and so, so yeah, I think that, that health is, is a much, much, much more complicated thing than what a lot of people like to think. Even again, going back to a point that I made earlier, the foundation of, of health, the medical industry in the U.S. is through falsified diagnoses made by slave owners and anthropologists as a way to quell revolts, to stop people, stop, sla- stop slaves from revolting. Um, and if that is the foundation of health in the U.S., and then the medical industry itself refuses to contend with a possibility that fat folks can exist as fat without necessarily being at higher risk for anything else, right, then we don't actually get to the heart of what it is that people are actually experiencing, and we continue to produce and reproduce this idea that the only way to be is thin. I appreciate that um, that rundown. It's interesting too to me um, because it's like th- there's, uh, from what I understand, the research says that there's also health risks with being significantly underweight, but that's not, doesn't seem to be targeted or criminalized or demonized as much as being, um, quote unquote, overweight or obese is. Um, so th- there's a lot there. Um, I wish we had more time, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, what is the, uh, what's, what's the future look like, right? We're talking about this vision of black liberation, the work you've done, what's next, um, and how do we how do we get there? I don't know if I if I'm allowed to say this on a podcast or not, but I'm gonna say it anyway. <laughs> I think that it's I a think liberated that, podcast. Help yourself, right? Right. Uh, I think that what what the answer always is for me is that the the end goal for me is always revolution. Right. It's always direct direct conflict with the state. Um, that that is that is that is what's next. And I think that how we get there is is the million dollar question because I think that so many of us are way too held up in a a lot of other things to even start thinking about how we get there. Um, But we don't get there without a collective front, right? We don't get there without us having a shared understanding that revolution is the answer, that revolution is the goal. But what I also think is true is that if we are always beholden to our desires, if we are always invested in different ways in being in closer proximity to whiteness, which is to say in being in closer proximity to or rather by way of thinness, by cis-sexism, by heterosexism, by 
um, massage noir, by all these things, right? If, if we are wanting to be in close proximity to whiteness and we're beholden to that, then revolution is already always an impossibility. And so what I, what I hope is that if, if, if I have hope for anything, I hope that we all develop a deeper commitment to divesting from those desires consciously, right? I think unconsciously, that's a different conversation, but consciously divesting from, from these desires to be in closer proximity to whiteness by way of upholding anti-Blackness. And hopefully that pushes us closer to this understanding that revolution is the goal and is the answer. Deshaun, hey, I appreciate you. Thank you for your your work. Thank you for the conversation. Uh, Thank you for joining us on Black History Year. Thank you for having me. It's been a delight, for real. That was Deshaun L. Harrison. To learn more about their work, visit www.deshaunharrison.com. And be sure to check out their book, Belly of the Beast, The Politics of Anti-Fatness as Anti-Blackness. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. We believe telling empowering stories on black life and history can build a more liberated black future. Being here with us lets us know you probably feel like that's important too. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people do five or ten bucks a month, but really, everything makes a difference. Thank you for supporting the work. Black History Year is a production of Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. Our team includes Tarek Alani, Brooke Brown, Tasha Taylor, Somalia Rahman, Amber Davis, and Darren Wallace. Producing this episode, we have Sydney Smith and Lynn Webb for Push Black, and Ronald Young Jr., who also edits the show. Black History Year's executive producers are Lily Workna and me, Julian Walker. Peace. <laughs>